Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Phil Kalon. He's the founder and chief creative officer at Project 2050. Project 2050 is a cause marketing and brand strategy consultancy. So Phil, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Tats. It's great to be on the show. Awesome. So tell me how you got started in marketing. Oh my God. <laughs> how long is this podcast? <laughs> Give me the short version. Well, well, to be honest, I was a banking and finance major first. So I, I was actually on a finance track. I began my career at Goldman Sachs many, many years ago, working on the, um, in the municipal bond department. So I was, I was on my way to being a financial executive. And then during a the lunchtime, I came across a flyer for a magazine that spoke about creating a voice for those who did not have a voice. And it attracted me. And I called the number and it was a couple of guys from NYU who had started a magazine called Urban Magazine and just spoke about kind of like uh, urban or hip hop culture. And, and we're in the probably mid to late 90s at this point. And they were starting a publication that spoke about everything that had to do with culture. And I was always fascinated by culture. And so I uh, elected to help them in pro bono because their magazine was so small, but I felt that the opportunity was so big that they needed some guidance to help them get from A to Z. And so I began just essentially providing pro bono services in terms of business planning, in terms of creating strategic alliances, the types of things that perhaps they were not well versed at. Long story short, that led into kind of a more of appreciation around consumer behavior and how marketing played such an important part in shaping perception and in storytelling. And so I became uh, very much involved in this whole idea of storytelling. And so I transitioned from the banking side to the publishing side when the two founders said, can you join us and help us grow the magazine? And I did that. I quit a job that was actually paying quite well. For, <laughs> for me, it was kind of, you know, when you when you're young, you know, you're curious. And so for me, I, I always felt like my curiosity was more important at that point and still is to today than any paycheck that I would potentially get. And so I, I made the, tr tr the transition into independent publishing, which is not easy, but the magazine grew from, I think, 12 pages, black and white to 108 pages, full color. I mean, of course, of, uh, of 36 months that I was there. And then one of the brands that we helped build a relationship with Coca-Cola asked me to come and work for them. And so that's, well, that was my official transition from banking and publishing then into consumer marketing. As you know, Coca-Cola is the biggest CPG brand in the world. So you couldn't ask for a better learning opportunity in terms of consumer marketing and understanding consumer behavior and insights than working for a company as large as Coca-Cola. Mm. And so that's where my career began. 
Nice customer insights. That's where we always try to, to sort of expand our knowledge. Now, what, what did Coke do? Or what did you learn about gaining customer insight when you were at Coke? What I learned at Coke was that marketing is marketing was more of a science. There was science involved in marketing and I wasn't fully aware or I didn't fully appreciate the science part of it. Uh, and the science really kind of boils into kind of just psychology, if you will, of a consumer. What's the mindset of a consumer? What makes a consumer make a decision on whether or not they want to buy Coke or Pepsi in that case? And so that was interesting, really understanding the nuances involved in messaging, the nuances involved in how a product is placed at a supermarket eye level versus above eye level versus below eye level. And what does that do in terms of informing consumer purchase behavior? So it was those types of things that you take for granted as you walk up and down an aisle at a, at a supermarket or any other kind of big box retailer. But what I find out is, is that there's an actual science to that. And so I thought that was eye-opening for me because it allowed me to take my natural storytelling gift and match it up with the science behind consumer behavior. And I think those two things combined really equipped me to do the things that I do today. Mm. What are some things you run across in the science side that is misunderstood by people outside those specific disciplines? It's so interesting. Today, I, uh, I was on LinkedIn because someone sent me a note and I go on periodically and I, and I will answer a note. And then I saw a post that someone wrote about ex-CEO at Groupon. Mm-hmm. And he essentially had posted his resignation letter. And it was interesting because in the resignation letter, he said, as most kind of letters go, I've decided to leave because I want to pursue other interests. And then he said, no, I'm just kidding. I was just fired. And there was something, there was something about the honesty of that message, but was what, what attracted me more to the honesty part is at the very end, he wrote in his letter, one of the key learnings that I take away from this experience heading up Groupon for the last three years is that I let the lack of data influence my gut reaction to what a consumer wants. Mm. And I thought that was telling because mm. what you see right now is there is a, there's literally a tug of war that's taking place between data science and consumer marketing. Or oh, this is call it brand building. Let's just do that. Branding and data science. Let's just call it that. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of my Coca-Cola days when Coca-Cola was essentially two companies. There was Coca-Cola North America that handled the consumer marketing side. And then there was Coca-Cola Enterprises that was the bottler group and the distributor. Two very different mindsets. The Coca-Cola distributor really focused on the day in and day out of selling product. The Coca-Cola North America part really was, was about storytelling and how do we paint the narratives around our product that's going to help move the product at this at the store shelves. Two very different timelines, two very different business models, if you will. One is a long tail strategy. The other one is a more immediate strategy. And so I draw parallels to that because one might argue in this kind of tech forward world that 
tech holds all the answers in terms of we can identify when you've clicked on an ad. We can identify where you were before you clicked on that ad. We can identify where you went after you clicked on that ad. And so we often use that information to make marketing decisions for ourselves. And I think what that post illustrated to me and is something that I've always kind of held at the forefront is that I think you can become too reliant on data. And at the end of the day, a consumer purchase is an emotional action, right? People think about impulse buying. I bought something at the, at the cash register because it was right there. There was something that triggered an emotional, an emotional touch point that made you want to buy that product versus another product. And sometimes pricing eliminates that. It depends on what the consumer mindset is. You know, if you're a value shopper, then you're a value shopper. If you're a shopper based on what a brand represents and how you feel a brand represents your values, then you are a, va- you are a different type of value shopper. And so I, to answer your question, I don't think, I don't think data should to dictate your messaging. I think data should help either validate or can be used as a tool to make sure that your messaging is accurate. And so there's no substitute in my mind for emotional branding or storytelling. Mm. What I often tell people is Coca-Cola was creating magic way before there was ever a Google or Facebook or Instagram or anything. Nike was telling us to just do it before Mark Zuckerberg was even born. Apple was telling us be different before there was any data to back that up. And so I think this tug of war between data-driven versus consumer insights and storytelling, I think is a really, I, I think a lot of brands are struggling with that. Mm. The lifts of the world, the Googles of the world, even Facebooks of the world. And so if you carefully look at some of the advertising messages that are out there now for those types of platforms, you realize that they, have, they take on a more personal approach. Amazon's ads are very personal. Facebook's ads right now are very personable. Same can be said about Google. So I think there's a realization that your ability to connect emotionally to your consumer is where the gold is. And I think data allows you to do that more efficiently today than yesterday. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned sort of culture back. Now, how does culture or being in tune with culture help you could it connect emotionally with the customer? I think it's, it's extraordinarily important. I mean, one of the things that I've always used is, is qualitative research versus, versus quant. I feel like it's more important to, to, know, to know what a consumer is doing versus what a consumer is saying. Hmm. If that makes sense. I always kind of want to go to the core of what motivates an action. And the whole idea of, I've disrupted the whole focus group model years ago when I, when I first started the agency because I always felt like focus groups, people at focus groups mostly told you what you wanted to hear. I want to go to, what do you really feel? And then a step further to that is, what are your actual actions? And so... And so I, I, you know, I think that is kind of where 
the magic exists. And that is rooted in culture. And so for me, I constantly step back and try to look at the entire playing field. You do some social listening, you get a sense of what people are feeling. You're in tune with those that are either in and around your community. You get a sense of what they're feeling. And if you're well-rounded in terms of the circles that you operate in and the different sources of information you take in, you can start to draw a picture of where you feel a trend is going or whether a trend is, is beginning. And so I, I use my kind of natural, almost going back to the, to the word curiosity, to dissect where I feel movement is beginning. And, I, and I've been pretty successful in doing that thus far. And I hope I continue to do that. Yeah, so you touched on consumer products. What about sort of business to business or let's say building materials? Like what, what sort of things can those type of companies do to become more relevant or participate in the conversations that are happening in the world? It's so interesting because I think companies and, and, and I'll use companies and brands interchangeably. I think companies have started to create their own personalities. And I find that fascinating. I think, I think companies are people and I would approach and I would approach it in that fashion. And so I think, I think historically it's been transactional, right? I've got a product, I've got a key offering, I've got a, I've got a point of differentiation between my product and another product. And you sell based on that, based on whatever the white space opportunity is. And that's still very much real, but I feel like today, a company needs a identity and it needs a personality almost. And I think B2B is starting to take that shape. It's almost like a new form of consumerism, if you will, but it's B2B driven. So I think it's so important for companies to be very clear in terms of who they are, what they stand for, and why are they, doing, why are they creating the products or the services that they're, that they're doing. And I think other companies buy on that. So the storytelling has moved from the consumer side to the business to business side, because I think everyone is looking for connective tissue that makes sense from a corporate perspective. You want your partners to be aligned in terms of values. And I feel like that's kind of where the new wave is going to go in terms of B2B, if that answers your question. Yeah. So... To what extent do you think the brands can get involved? Because maybe brands are involved in social justice or something, but then maybe someone could say, well, you're just a soap company. Or like, what's, what's the extent of sort of a brand being involved or a company being involved without it not seeming sort of, sort of targeted or just more deliberate? A great question. One of, one of the most famous quotes I want to say famous quotes, but one of the quotes that sticks into my mind that Michael Jordan made back in the early 2000s, when brand Jordan was really taking off as a brand, and there was a civil unrest taking place. I think this was Rodney King, if I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to understand the cultural context around, around his comment. But I think he was getting some pushback because they felt like people felt like Michael Jordan wasn't doing his part to bring, to shed light on, on social issues. And Michael Jordan said, Republicans buy sneakers too. 
And I thought that was honest and revealing at the same time. And, and it goes to your question, how do you draw the line? How do you, how do you straddle that? And I think you can do that to an extent. I think fast forward today, I, consumers are wanting to be clear about where you stand as a company. And I always like to tell my clients that there, there are commonalities, areas of commonality that consumers can relate to no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. And so I try to focus on platforms that unify versus divide. And it really all depends on the appetite of the company, right? And so I can tell you this much. I, I think if for, for companies that are too neutral, I think they end up losing because I think inaction shouldn't be a strategy. I think proaction is, is, is more of a strategy. And so it really all depends on the tolerance of the brand. You know, there's some brands that I saw, I saw a post recently from a beverage company, a beer company that created a commemorative, commemorative designed beer to help promote Black Lives Matter, right? And I love to read the posts. I love to read the comments because it gives you a sense of, again, you gotta, you have to do social listening so you can get a sense. And you have to kind of like dissect the, the comments that are on purpose to divide and the, and the bots that exist. And you gotta get back to, you gotta get to the actual comments from real people. And some comments said, well, now I know what beer I should not buy, right? And then the founder of the beer company responded back to say, I've got 22 other brands. Please make sure you don't buy those either. And so that person clearly said, you know what? I don't want your business. Go drink someone else's beer. So that's an example of someone that said, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'd rather, I'd rather my customers be like-minded than me trying to sell to a customer who, who doesn't share the values that I share. And so that's an example of an extreme version of that, right? And so, it, 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 again, it all depends on the appetite. I personally feel like every brand should have a purpose and you should select what that purpose is and you should live in that purpose. And I think consumers today can see through the bullshit. And if you're out there telling a story and your actions are saying something different and you're gonna get called on that. Cancel culture is real and it's not gonna go anywhere. I think there's, I think in some cases it's, it's been a bit extreme, but uh, that often happens. The pendulum switch swings left or right. The, the sweet spot is if, if you can find the middle somehow. But I feel like, I feel like brands, and it's interesting, I was, I, was, I was thinking about writing a post about this. So you're getting my raw thoughts on this right now. I think brands are the new evangelists. Mm. I, I, think, I think where the, where the public sector fails in terms of government, in terms of helping to solve social issues, whether that's healthcare, whether that's access to education, whether that is 
eliminating poverty, whatever the case may be, where governments fall short, I think brands are going to start to pick up the slack. And so what I predict is I think there's going to be more private public partnerships that are going to start to happen. And I think there's a real opportunity for brands to capture both share of heart and share of wallet. And I think those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. I think they can live together. And so that's kind of where I see brands going. Brands are powerful. Brands are powerful. I mean, brands are more powerful than heads of state <laughs> in terms of the money that they yield, the influence that they yield, the ability for them to influence media. They are powerful. For me, Coca-Cola is one of the most powerful brands in the world. When a brand can spend $2 billion on, on paid media, that's power. You can dictate what your media partner says or, or what values they, they promote. You're a talk show host and you're talking rhetoric that's divisive. An advertiser can pull their money off, off of your show and that type of things. Those types of things are happening. So it's a, it's a tricky space. <laughs> it's a tricky, tricky space. There's no definitive right or wrong answer. You just have to be comfortable as the board of directors or uh, the founder of a startup that you've got to be clear on what direction you want to go and feel good in that direction and then go all in. You know, but you, you, know, you need to be careful too, right? You need to make sure that your house is in order, right? The clearest example of that is Nike. There's so interesting about Nike is their brand messaging is so on point. They were one of the few brands that did not abandon Colin, Colin Ka Kaepernick. But they have their diversity numbers in the senior suite level are horrific. Their top management is all white. So their house is not in order. So that's where you have to be careful. It's one thing about, I'm going to put out messaging of empowerment, and they've done that. But there's another thing to practice what you preach. Mm. And so if those two things don't align, then you're potentially putting yourself at the crosshairs. What's the best company that executes in the marketplace and also practice what, they're, what they preach? Oh, man. Who do you love for that? I can't, I can't, the fact that I have to think about it. <laughs> there's an opportunity there then. If, if, Put it this way, Tats, put it this way. Since you and I last spoke, and then prior to that, let's say the last 120 days, I've been having calls from companies, from VC firms, from PR agencies, from advertising agencies, all wanting to get advice from me as to how can I best navigate these waters, right? And, and I try to do my best for each individual potential client to tell them what good can look like, because it all depends. If you're a hundred thousand employees plus that strategy is way different from if you're, I have a thousand employees, the risk reward ratios are different. And there's a lot of moving parts. There's shareholders, there's, there's market share, there's gate there's stakeholders. You've got to be very careful in your approach. What I often say is this, if your company employs a chief diversity officer, that's a problem. Because if your culture was based on diversity at its core, 
then there would be no need for a chief diversity officer. So whenever I see, and you go up and down LinkedIn, and you say, XYZ, new chief diversity officer, and ABC, new chief diversity officer, I cringe at that. <laughs> because one part of me says, great, I, 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 that's a step forward. Another part of me says, you know, that's just the easy way out. Your strategy can be, I'm going to hire a chief diversity officer, provide him with very little access or power to influence decisions that are made at the board or, or on the C-suite level. Oftentimes, they're just public relations and stop gaps that are put place. And, and I feel badly because some of these people are super talented. And I know a lot of them personally, to be honest. So I, I'm not... I'm not uh, downplaying the importance of that role. The point that I'm making is, if your company was diverse, there would be no need for this position. So I would have to think about what companies don't have that person and then look at their staff. And that's to me what good looks like, right? I just feel like there's been a lot of people that have held on to privilege and access and they need to they need to unlock that for other people to participate. And, and that's a long-term strategy. That's a, that's, that's a long tail strategy, should I say. So I don't have an answer to you. I don't, if I think about it and I do some research, I probably can find a company, but nothing comes to mind. I'm sure they are a few, but the majority of companies that I deal with are behind the eight ball. And, and you know, it starts, it's, it starts from the core. That makes sense. All right. So what, what are some sort of habits or things that you do to sort of keep, keep everything in check? Cause I know you're a pretty busy guy. You're dealing with major brands all the time. You have to keep track of all these movements and trends and change. How do you, how do you keep organized? <laughs> I don't, I shouldn't say that I, I do, but I have to tell you it's intuition for me. I, I try to stay plugged in as much as I can to different areas, whether it's politics, whether it's consumer behavior, whether it's tech. I just, I observe a lot. I read a lot. I listen a lot. I love being the fly on the wall. And, and then I take all that information in and I, and I form my own, my own thought around what I, what I feel. I think at the end of the day, it's a, for me, I, I say instinctual because you can put all the variables in, in an equation and come out with a series of outcomes. For me, I, I, use, I use a bit of my experience and, and, I, and I, I allow that experience to set my, my barometer to where I feel something is going. They always say that history repeats itself and that's very true. I recently had a conversation with someone who's looking to, looking to reimagine how corporate boards are set up. And I have the experience pipeline to have been through a few of these, starting with Rodney King and, and even some of the people that I might be listening to this may not have even been born during that time to understood what that means. But every, unfortunately, every three to five years, something happens in terms of race relations that, that brings it to the forefront. 
And then some change is made based on that feeling of angst and, and anger. And then, and then it kind of fades away. And then you wait for the next thing to happen. It's almost very similar. And I hate to draw the parallel, but it's the only one that comes to my mind is gun violence. Anytime there's a school shooting, everyone is up in arms as they should. But has there been any legislation done? And I'm not one to be a pessimist, but is again, understanding human behavior. And so as much as people want things to change, they, some really want them to stay the same, right? And so this is where rhetoric and action, I think, meet. The difference between today and I think yesterday is that I think consumers are a lot more in tune and they're holding themselves, people, friends, peers, brands accountable for their actions or inaction. So yeah, I, I just stay connected, Tat. I just stay in tune. I listen. Yeah, makes sense. Is there anything else do you want to share with our listeners? Yes. If you are a social change agent, the world is your oyster right now. What do I mean by that? If you are driven to be an entrepreneur, think about how you can be a social impact entrepreneur. I think where the opportunity is, is if you can create a company or a platform that helps solve an issue and you can somehow wrap a service or a product around it, I think that's where, where the future is. It's less about, you know, I've got an app that allows you to get beer delivered in 20 minutes and okay, that's cool. But are you really doing anything meaningful? Is there anything tangible outside of just having the thirst of the beer? And so I feel there's so much opportunity. I mean, I, I you know, I wish I was 20 all over again, to be honest. <laughs> I, I really, really, really feel like if you can use the power of the gig economy and technology to help solve social issues, I think that's where it's at. So I uh, encourage those that are looking to strike out and do their own things, that there's plenty of space in the social impact arena. And I just speaking with, with people younger than I, and I do that quite often, I'm optimistic because the, the 20 year olds that I'm speaking to now are way different from when I was 20. I think there, there's definitely a, a level of, of uh, activism and wokeism that, that is starting to inform what they want to do with their lives. And so, so anyway, that's kind of where I, uh, where I feel. It's so interesting as we move into such a tech forward future, the need for human connection is more important than ever before. So interesting. Yeah. There's a, there's a deep dive in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. No, Phil, I can feel your passion. It makes a lot of sense creating real change and starting from that change and working backwards to, to sort of offer a service in line with that or product in line with that, I think is the way things are going. So thank you for coming by, Phil. 
My pleasure. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also, want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.